In this episode, I'm joined by Delson Armstrong, spiritual teacher and star student of meditation teacher Bante Vimala Ramsey, whose senior student David Johnson has said, Delson Armstrong has mastered every practice we've given him. He is the most amazing student we've ever seen. In this interview, Delson recalls his early life training in the Himalayas, where he mastered the system of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, attaining to all of its highest states of Samadhi, attained all six levels of Kriya Yoga under three separate lineages, studied Sanskrit, and was exposed to practices of Shaiva Tantra through students of Osho. Delson shares his subsequent explorations of Buddhism, including Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and the Twim practice of Bhante Vimala Ramsey. Delson recounts and contrasts his experiences accomplishing the eight jhanas, attaining the four levels of Buddhist awakening, and realizing Rigpa. Delson also reveals yogic feats such as recalling past lives and entering into a type of suspended animation called Niroda Samapati for up to six days, and reveals his passion for neuroscience and recent participation in a study at the University of Amsterdam that has examined his brain and body in this state of yogic suspension. So without further ado, Delson Armstrong. Delson Armstrong, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. Well, I'm very pleased to be uh, talking with you, Delson, and especially pleased after the introduction that David Johnston, um, author of A Path to Nirvana and a student of uh, Bhante Vimla Ramsey, I'm even more interested after his introduction to you, which I might read to you now if you don't mind. Delson Armstrong has mastered every practice we've given him. He's the most amazing student we've ever seen, and he's completely open to talking about everything and his experiences. He remembers many past lives as a yogi in the Himalayas and in other realms. He's mastered the jhanas in the way Bhante, that's Bhante Vimala Ramsey, in the way Bhante teaches, right from the suttas, as Bhante uh, V explains them. He would be happy to explain to your audience how one goes through the jhanas and makes the final leap to nirvana and all of the four levels of attainment. He can talk about the special state of the anagami and the arahant, whereby you make a determination to sit in the state of niroda or cessation. There's no breath and perhaps two heartbeats a minute. He just allowed himself to be measured at a Netherlands research center. So that was David's um, introduction to you when he suggested we uh, suggested you for the podcast. And so amazing. And uh, so (laughs) on the the basis of that, I'm very, I'm very, uh, very pleased to meet you. It's a wonderful introduction. I really appreciate that. Could you talk a little bit about your life story, how it was you grew up, etc. And you went through a number of spiritual systems to quite a high degree of attainment uh, before it was that you came to the method that you're currently working in now, this uh, twim and so on with Bhante Vimala Ramsey's teachings. So could you just take us through the arc of your story and how it was we're speaking now? Sure. So I was born in India um, and I lived there for the first five years of my life. Uh, We moved then to the US. I grew up in uh, New Jersey, New York. So most of my life up until the age of 13 was basically fairly American childhood. Um, and I was uh, born in that part of, uh, well, part of this time where, you know, we were just being introduced to computers. And so I had, uh, the best of both worlds, if you, if you would, because I, I remember playing, uh, you know, basketball and going biking in the summers, but at the same time being, being able to play video games on the computer and PlayStation and so on and so forth. You were born in 1990. That's correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, uh, 
I wasn't really introduced to spirituality as such. My parents uh, were very open-minded. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic household, actually, and uh, my mom's been um, pretty much a very devout uh, Catholic, but she was very open-minded about things, and uh, she let me explore all kinds of different philosophies for myself. Uh, they were not very you know, imposing on what I should believe or what I shouldn't believe. And I remember uh, we went to India uh, when I was about 11 or 12, and it was quite a culture shock because I had very little memory of India um, at that time. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been to India, but as soon as you go to India and you land, you know, it's just, it bombards the senses. There's just noise everywhere. Uh, there's uh, all kinds of interesting smells and tastes and the warmth and the humidity. And, you know, it's just an onslaught on the senses. Um, and then that was really my first introduction into, let's say, the different kinds of belief systems from Asia, particularly India. And I was quite uh, fascinated by it and quite curious about it. And when we get, when we, when we came back, uh, there was a family friend who introduced me to Hatha yoga. He took me to a yoga studio and uh, we did all kinds of asanas. And I found that it was quite, it came quite naturally uh, to me. And there was uh, a lot of very advanced postures we did, like the headstand, like the shoulder stand and things like that. Of course, I needed a little bit of help, but you know, once I was there, it was just amazing. And then we came out of that session about an hour later. And I remember just feeling very like, you know, elated and floating. And I was, I was just so surprised that, you know, doing this kind of process and mind you, I was only 13 or 14 at the time. So I wasn't really aware that this was possible. So, you know, I asked him like, is this possible to do like every single time and how, you know, where does this come from? And he gave me this book. It was like a compendium of different kinds of um, postures and breathing techniques and meditation techniques. And so I devoured that book and I looked for more books and searched for more books and started reading. Then I had a chance to actually go back to India at the age of uh, uh, 14, 13 or 14. And uh, I studied at an international school uh, in um, a place called Gurgaon. It's like north of New Delhi. And uh, was introduced to all kinds of interesting people from all around the world and had a very interesting education. But I was also very much interested in meditation. Um, and so over there, I actually met a yogi. He was a teacher there, but he was also a yogi. And, uh, you know, I shared a lot of my, my thoughts about life and school life and this and that. And, you know, I had a fairly normal school life, but then I kind of got disenchanted with it quite early. Um, by the time I was 16, I decided to take a little break from school and went to the Himalayas. And that's where things uh, took an interesting turn because I got introduced to a lot of interesting uh, teachers and gurus. And, you know, it was just, it was majestic. We, we went up, uh, we went up to the Ganges. We went up to a place called Haridwar, Rishikesh, up to Uttarkashi. And we spent most of our time in Uttarkashi, which is still about the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, and I got introduced to yoga philosophy. I got introduced to Vedanta, uh, Advaita Vedanta. I got introduced to Sankhya um, and all kinds of interesting texts. Like you said, Yoga Sutras, uh, Yoga Vashistha, which is a very interesting one. Um, and also some, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, Kashmiri Shaivism and Tantra and, and things like that. So 
my education in spirituality really started there at the age of 16. And I got interested in learning more about the these different kinds of states. So I started learning Sanskrit as best as I could. Uh, so I could go back to the original text and really understand what they're saying. Because sometimes the translations of these texts aren't always the greatest. Uh, you know, they're wonderful to have uh, for the English speaker, but it's great to go back to the Sanskrit or the Pali and, and you get a different connotation from reading it directly in Sanskrit. So I had a chance to study the yoga sutras for quite some time. Then I got introduced to Kriya Yoga. And I got introduced to Kriya Yoga under three different lineages, under the lineage of uh, Yogananda with his uh, self-realization fellowship in uh, Encinitas. They have a Indian uh, foundation, which is called the YSS, that's the Yogoda Satsang Society. That's really where I got introduced uh, to it. Uh, the second lineage was under um, Lahiri Mahasaya, who's actually the guru of Yogananda's guru. So Yogananda's guru was Yukteswar, and Yukteswar's guru was Lahiri Mahasaya. He, he's really the guy who formulated all of the different practices under under Kriya Yoga. And I had a I had a teacher who was a direct uh, direct student of uh, one of Mahasaya's Lahiri Mahasaya's uh, grandsons. So it was sort of a direct lineage from there. So I, I was introduced to um, that particular lineage. And then the third lineage was under Paramhansa Hariharananda, who actually was a student of uh, Yukteswar. And in that particular lineage, there were six degrees of Kriya Yoga, which I went through. And they get more and more refined in terms of the breathing techniques, in terms of the different postures. And there are different kinds of things that you go through uh, when you do, do those kinds of techniques. Because what you're really doing is you're manipulating the kundalini in a certain way through the spine and different parts of the body to awaken different kinds of centers. Um, so that was very interesting. Uh, I had a lot of great experiences from that. And then I really went back to understanding the teachings of Ramana Maharishi. Uh, it was introduced to some people who knew uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj and uh, J. Krishnamurti as well as U. G. Krishnamurti. So I've had a very diverse, let's say, you know, spiritual education. And in terms of the Yoga Sutras, there are some levels of Samadhi that I talked about that seem to be very esoteric. But if you really break it down, it, it's quite simple and it's quite easy to follow. Uh, but it gets a little more, uh, well, not necessarily esoteric, but it, it gets more refined in terms of the different kinds of states of mind. Uh, because they're, the more advanced states of mind that you get into where language stops being able to explain some of the things that are happening. You know, the language can only point to certain parts of these states. So then, you know, I went back to, I went back to the States uh, and I actually uh, studied at the New York Film Academy. So I uh, did screenwriting and ghostwriting and I wrote some novels and things like that. And that was 10 years ago. And I went to San Diego where I helped develop an app. I was uh, working at a public company. And then I got introduced to Bhante Vimalaramsi. And uh, like most people, you know, I was just looking for uh, different kinds of meditation techniques in, on, on Buddha, in, in Buddhism. Uh, and I was interested in Tibetan Buddhism. So I got introduced to Dzogchen and Mahamudra for some time. But then I also was uh, interested in uh, metta meditation and the Brahma Viharas, which is really the forte of the twin practice. 
So I did a search on YouTube for Metta Meditation, and lo and behold, we have Bhante Vimaramsi on there. And uh, I didn't really understand much of what he was saying in the beginning because he was talking directly from the suttas. And a lot of the, a lot of the understanding in the suttas, you really get like after you do the practice. So actually, I had a chance to do an online retreat uh, with David Johnson, as you mentioned. Um, and I had a chance to meet Bhante uh, a year or two after that. And he was doing a retreat in California, the usually Easter retreat that he does annually. And I only went and saw him for about a day. Uh, and we had a good conversation about the, the more refined states within TWIM, what we call the jhanas and the different states that are within the jhanas, like different experiences that are going on. And at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, are you interested in, in teaching? And I said, well, with your permission, yeah, I, I think I could start teaching. And he said, well, please go ahead and start teaching. And so I, I started off teaching online uh, through the Damasuka uh, Meditation Center website. But I took a little bit of a break um, and then went back to Asia. And I had another experience with TWIM, and it was a very profound experience. And I went back into the suttas and started to really understand what was going on when they were talking about the suttas. Because... If you read the suttas just as it is, it's very interesting language because it's almost like a secret code. And once you experience certain things, it starts unlocking and unpacking a lot of the things that the Buddha or the other arahats in the suttas are talking about. And, uh, you know, it, it was about, about three years in between when I met Bhante and before I actually started teaching as such. Uh, and so that started off with people sending me emails and then getting on phone calls and then on Skype and Zoom and then the pandemic hit. And so during the pandemic, uh, you know, somebody suggested, why don't you do weekly Dhamma talks? And I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. And that's really how it started. And then that grew. So I'm, I've been working with the, the Suttavada Foundation, which is a sister organization with Dhammasukha. And, uh, you know, they've been arranging different kinds of online retreats uh, with me teaching them. And now we're, st we're just starting to get into physical retreats. So really, that's, that's been the journey so far. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That's a lot of systems to go through. And you've <laughs> said publicly that you attained the highest levels of Samadhi laid out in the Yoga Sutras, which is a, sort of predicated on concentration power, it seems. At least, at least that seems to be a big part of it. You've also said these the six levels of this of a particular uh, Kriya Yoga lineage, and so on. Uh, I'm curious if you could describe a little bit your experience with each of those. Say, starting with the Yoga Sutras, when you first began to practice, uh, what was it like, and uh, what what was the journey there? It seems an unusually rapid rate of progress, or perhaps you had unusually clear teaching. To what would you attribute your remarkable success in these different systems? Well, I probably should first owe it to my teachers because they were very clear in, in, in giving me a very good sort of grounding and a very good foundation in, in the Yoga Sutras. I mean, you know, before we started to get into the, the, the later parts of the Yoga Sutras in terms of the, the Ashtanga Yoga Marg, as it's called, which is really, you know, uh, we talk about Yama, Niyama, um, asana, pranayama, pratihara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. So when I started getting into the practice, you know, it was very much important to establish yama and niyama, which is really related to 
the the ethics of it uh you know not lying not stealing and so on and which is which is very similar to the buddhist principles and in fact you'll find this quite universal in any tradition the the ethics part of it and then things related to the body and how to clean the body and how to maintain uh different kinds of levels of let's say spiritual emotional and mental cleanliness uh which is part of that yama niyama process and then only then after that, you know, we started getting getting into asanas. And what I realized about asanas is, yes, hatha yoga has a lot of benefits in terms of the health benefits, uh, in terms of helping keep the keeping the body uh, supple and and energetic and so on. But if you go back to the yoga sutras, what it talks about is that you know any kind of asana that is simple and keeps you steady and comfortable is considered an asana. So I decided to master only one or two asanas at the most. I did the whole practice of different kinds of, uh, you know, vinyasas and different things in Hatha Yoga, but my favorite posture was the shoulder stand. Uh, the headstand, not so much. My, my teacher said, you know, the headstand is not really that uh, important for you, but if you can do the shoulder stand, that would be great. And so. I did the shoulder stand and the plow, which is when you take your body, you know, all the way, your feet all the way to the back. And that kind of unlocks certain things in the body in terms of the way, I guess, pressure points or different parts of the spine were kind of, uh, you know, twisted in a certain way. So that really prepared me, let's say, for the different parts of pranayama. Now, Kriya Yoga includes some parts of asana and some parts of pranayama. And I was introduced to the basics of pranayama, which include the alternate nostril breathing and what's known as kapalabhati. Kapalabhati is basically known as the skull shining uh, breathing technique. And my teacher had me do like 100 at a time, 200 at a time. And there was a point where I started doing 2000 at a time. So it was like a, a progressive sort of uh, steps in that process. It was only after then that I got introduced into things like Kriya Yoga and things in like Pratyahara. And Pratyahara is all about withdrawing the senses, being able to center your mind around an object of meditation. And there are different kinds of object of objects of meditation in the Yoga Sutras. Uh, for example, Patanjali talks about using the pranava, which is actually the word om or the syllable om. Uh, and then centering the mind's attention around that. And then that gets you into a concentrated state of mind. When you start to do that, you start to lose awareness of the six senses, including the mind, because the mind starts to become much quieter. Uh, and then you start losing contact with the outside world. Once you have that, there's what's known as dharana. And dharana is really where the mind starts to become further concentrated by really, you know, uh, focusing in on that object. When that happens, there might be different kinds of thoughts and, and, and different kinds of ideas and concepts that come up in the head. And, and the point here is to not to basically to ignore them and, and to, to just keep your mind centered around that object. The more you do that, uh, the more you then get into what's known as dhyana. And dhyana is really concentration. Now this is concentration proper, if you will. This is really the mind that becomes super focused. And then the fruit of that practice is samadhi. 
Now, samadhi is understood to be sama, which means equanimous or balanced or tranquil, and dhi, which is the intelligence or, or the mind. Now, within the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali talks about different levels of samadhi or different types of samadhi, let's say. They're not necessarily levels upon levels, although when you get to the more refined states, you'll see what I mean. The beginning part of it is called bhava samadhi and ananda samadhi. And this is really related to the joy that somebody feels. There's a certain level of joy that comes about because of that concentrated mind. And from that joy, you experience uh, sasmita samadhi and asmita samadhi. Sasmita samadhi is the sense of I am is present, the sense of I am meditating. So it's a division between, let's say, the subject and the object. Then asmita samadhi is where the subject falls away and all there is is the object, so to speak. Then you have uh, savichara samadhi, savitarka samadhi, nirvichara samadhi, and nirvitarka samadhi. And what these are is vichara and vitarka are basically the words for thinking and examining thought. So there's still some kind of mental activity in savichara and savitarka. But in nirvit, uh, nirvichara and nirvitarka, that thought process starts to become more silent and eventually goes away completely. And then finally, we have savikalpa and nirvikalpa. And in savikalpa, what it is, is that sense of uh, object is still there. Like, so there's still a subtle sense of self, a subtle sense of an subject looking at that object. Even though now we've gone through that process of sasmita and asmita, we still have that process of seeing an object. But then what we talk about when we say savikalpa or nirvikalpa is basically that word vikalpa in those two words. Vikalpa means the, the alternate, or it can also mean choice, or it can also mean intention. So this is a samadhi, which is basically the choiceless awareness. Coming back to Krishnamurti, what we're talking about really is there's a choice, there's an intention to keep focusing on the object in Savikalpa. But in Nirvikalpa, there's no alternate here. There's no choice given. It's just a flow, a process. And eventually, there is just the object completely. And it's like a merging of the, the Atman with the Brahman, as we talk about in Vedanta. Now, there's another level called Sahaja Samadhi. There's another level called Dharma Mega Samadhi. And it's very fascinating. I mean, if you go back into the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali talks about really interesting things that you can do with these states. Because if you focus on certain parts of the body, or if you focus on certain parts of your thoughts, or things like that, you start to develop siddhis. You start to develop certain kinds of psychic faculties. So he talks about, for example, how do you get to past lives? You know, you get into them by looking at your samskaras. Samskaras are basically the roots of your thoughts that are dependent upon previous choices you've made in the past. You start looking at that, it kind of, it, it unfolds and it kind of goes on rewind and you start to look at different past lives. Then he talks about using this process of samyama, which is taking dharana, dhyana and samadhi together. It's a flow and being able to look at each moment in time. And it's almost like sci-fi stuff, because if you actually look at the Sanskrit, what he's talking about is freezing space and time and being able to look at different moments in time. 
And you start to be able to do this with that process of samyama. You talk about Kriya Yoga. Kriya Yoga is a process of manipulating different parts of the body or different chakras, as they're called, in the spine. But when you get into the when you get to the the fourth and fifth level, you're actually taking that energy of the kundalini and not going outside of the spine. You make certain kinds of movements that affect the way that that kundalini starts to move up. And it's not about bringing it up through the spine, but through a certain kind of circuit that moves basically like a snake up towards the, the crown chakra. And it's very intense stuff. I mean, it can be, you know, it can get quite intense and some people kind of get freaked out by it because you start, you lose complete awareness of the body and you realize there's just consciousness everywhere. And some people get so freaked out that they get, they go like, no, no, I don't want any more of this. I need to get back to my body. So for those kinds of things, there's certain kinds of techniques that you have to do in Kriya Yoga to keep the, the mind-body complex, as it were, grounded. So you keep your, your, your mind in a way that even if you go to these higher elevated states, you don't freak out because you, you have your root chakra open, which keeps you grounded. And then the last parts of the degrees of Kriya Yoga have to do with the centers in the brain. So what that means is you start to develop uh, access into the thalamus and hypothalamus, into the pituitary gland and into the pineal gland. And they start opening up a second secondary chakra, which is really the eighth chakra, which is about, about here. So here we're going through the seven chakras, but once those are open, now you get into this part, which is where they say is a storehouse of your karma. And you do certain kinds of techniques to open that up and bring that energy down into the pineal gland. So this is some, I mean, really, you know, I can tell you all about these things, but the way it's done is really the secret of it. Uh, but a lot of people don't like to talk about these different things with Kriya Yoga because it's a very, very secretive thing. But I, I never saw the need and importance for it because the way I'm explaining these things to you, um, they give some kind of idea, but not necessarily the actual technique of how to do them. Very fascinating. And I'm curious, uh, much debated, the fourth yama, uh, brahmacharya. I'm curious how that was interpreted <laughs> in your in your training. And actually, when you were going through these systems, how old were you and how what was the time period? Uh, say, yeah. oh, it took you a year to do the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, for example, or two years to do Kriya Yoga, and you started at 16. Can you be precise like that? Is it possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was uh, in the Himalayas at the age of 16, that was my first introduction into uh, the asana and pranayama. So the yama and niyama part I was starting to do, and they had me first just, just do that for about three or four months. And then from there, just focusing on asana and pranayama for about six months to a year. And then getting into the samadhi parts of it. So by the by the time I was about 20 or 21, I was starting to do actual meditation. But it was all happening at the same time, if you will. Uh, and what I mean by that is I was getting my introduction into the Yoga Sutras, getting my intro uh, introduction into the Yoga Vashista and other different kinds of techniques. Um, but they were done in a way that kind of fit like a little, like a puzzle, you know, they, they kind of were joined together in a very harmonious manner. 
by the time I was uh, 23, I was uh, basically done with the Kriya Yoga practice. So it's basically a, through a seven-year span uh, from the age of 16 to about 23 that I went through that process of going through the Samadhi levels of the Yoga Sutras and then going through the six degrees of Kriya Yoga, which is, as you said, quite rapid. I mean, it takes, for some people, it takes about a good two or three years before they're introduced to the next degree of Kriya Yoga. But I guess I was a bit of a, a bit of a stubborn and adamant student uh, with my teachers. And I practiced for quite some time. And what I mean by that is you're looking at about six to eight hours of practice every single day. Um, and that's not the kind of time people necessarily always have to practice. So it kind of got accelerated because of that, because I ha had the good fortune of spending the majority of my day, if not all my day, uh, in this particular practice. And Brahmacharya. Brahmacharya. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, you know, my teachers were very open with this and they were, they were the kind of teachers who said, Brahmacharya, we understand to be celibacy. But they also understood Brahmacharya to be a life where you have controlled sexuality. In other words, they were very much uh, of the nature of saying, uh, you know, and it wasn't a taboo, uh, it, you know, sex and sexuality and these kinds of topics were not a taboo at all. I had a good fortune of having teachers who really talked about these things and, you know, even talked about like the Kama Sutra. And the Kama Sutra is very interesting because, you know, the Western idea Uh, or it had been that the Western idea of the Kama Sutra was that it's just these different sexual positions and things like that. That's just a very small portion of the Kama Sutra because there's other parts of the Kama Sutra that talk about sex and sexuality in terms of, you know, well, the art of seduction, let's say, and, uh, you know, uh, things related to relationships and uh, how long to be in a relationship for and things like that. So I got introduced to that as well. Uh, I, ha I had the good fortune to be introduced to that. And what they said was sexuality should be open, um, but it should be in a way that doesn't harm yourself and that doesn't harm other people. And obviously within a certain bound. And they did have the understanding of what's known as ojas. And the, the, the idea of ojas is, you know, the, the retention of your sexuality, of, of your semen, converted into ojas and things like that. And, but those are very advanced practices. Those are things that, you know, take quite some time. So my teachers were basically of the notion that you're young and you will have, you know, sexual desires and there's nothing wrong with it. And there's no, there's no need to suppress it because as soon as you suppress sexuality, it can go haywire. I mean, we hear about different kinds of students and even certain gurus who go through that process and it just doesn't become... Uh, you know, it's it just, it, it, that repression, you know, becomes something that becomes animalistic. So they were about of the, of the idea that sexuality itself is not a taboo, but what you do with it and how you use it is what matters. Um, but they were of the nature and my, my teachers were celibate. They were, they were basically people who went through that process of the traditional brahmacharya, but they were open-minded enough to know that as a youngster, You have certain drives and it's important to, okay, pay attention to that. But eventually, as you start to get more and more advanced, you start to lose interest in sexuality. You start to lose interest in sex. And it's a natural process. It's a process that happens because when you get to these more refined states, 
you get less and less interested in the in the sensual states on the levels of the senses and on the level of sex as such. So I think brahmacharya should be discussed in a way that is sex positive, and it should be discussed in a way that allows people to say and make the choice of whether they want to be celibate or not, and give them you know the warnings for both open sexuality as well as celibacy, and let them make their own decision uh, as to how that helps. But I, I think you know as you get older, quite naturally you realize you kind of lose any kind of significance when it comes to sexuality. And and then coupled with the practice, it just isn't an important thing in your life anymore. And that's the case, presumably for you. Uh, Bhante Vamalaramsi has said in, in the interview in this podcast that anagamis, for example, have no sexual desire. In fact, the suttas do say an arhat, for example, is incapable. It's impossible for an arhat yeah. to have sexual intercourse. And that's been your experience. Yeah, yeah, I, I have lost complete interest in any of that. It's uh, and it's a natural process, you know. That's what I'm saying. You don't need to suppress it. the The mind will start to let go on its own as you do these practices, and specifically certain kinds of practices like the jhana experiences, like samadhi practice, because there's an understanding in the suttas that for for let's say lay individuals or people who are not really introduced to the meditation. Uh, the Buddha says, you know, your your domain really is sensuality. And he doesn't condemn it. He just says, that's for lay people. And that's for people who want to have a business and people who want to enjoy the finer things in life, but within means. And what that means is within an ethical uh, boundary, you know, in a way that doesn't harm yourself or others. But then what he says is there are many kinds of feelings. So you have uh, sexual and sensual feelings. But eventually, uh, once you start to experience the mental pleasant feelings of samadhi, it's like you have gotten a, a more profound and deeper and richer experience of pleasure that the, the lower pleasures uh, just don't, they, they pale in comparison. So that's why I say it's a natural process. When you actually experience these pleasant feelings in the form of samadhi, the sensual and the sexual pleasures uh, pale in comparison. And then when you experience Nibbana, even the states of jhanas uh, become just a playground where you might just go and enjoy them. But then when you have Nibbana, that is the ultimate, you know, the bliss of Nibbana or Nirvana pay, uh, brings everything else uh, to a lower level, including Samadhi. And Samadhi here, are you referring to Samadhi in the Buddhist conception or in the Yoga Sutra conception, or you don't see a distinction there. I ask because, as you pointed out, it, it is the case that many advanced practitioners, well, many, it is the case that some advanced practitioners, masters of Samadhi, still do engage in sexuality and sometimes deleteriously, as you pointed out. So perhaps you've changed the, the kind of Samadhi you're referring to uh, in that sentence. Right. Is that the case? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good that's a good uh, thing you brought up because there is a distinction. Um, I will say to a certain extent, if you're doing the samadhi of the Yoga Sutras, there is something to be said about the fact that these these sexual energies can be, let's say, sublimated, you know, into deeper and more refined states. But uh, when I refer now to samadhi, we're talking about the Buddhist context of samadhi, where we're talking about now the four jhanas and the four ayatanas or the arupa jhanas. And so what we're looking at is what I notice in my practice with 
when I did the yoga sutras or the yoga sutra kind of uh, framework of samadhi practice. And when I look at the samadhi practice, the way it's taught according to the suttas with regards to the jhanas, there is an overlap in terms of the experiences. But the difference here is, at least when we talk about the twin practice that Bhante Vimalaramsi has introduced, is that it's less concentrated and more collected. I think there has to be a distinction made between what we say when we say concentration and what we say when we say collectedness. And what we're really talking about here is when we talk about concentration, the idea is that the mind becomes super focused. Uh, you know, in the suttas, it's talked about as mind crushing mind. And that sounds very, very painful. And indeed, it can become painful where, uh, for example, Bhantivil Maramsi, when he did his practice in Samadhi practice, as it's understood in the Mahasi tradition and so on, um, it was super concentrated and he experienced headaches and things like that. And so if you become super concentrated, what is happening is you are suppressing or repressing all of those desires instead of understanding and acknowledging them and letting them go in the proper way. What I mean by that is when you have collectedness, what you're doing is you have an object of meditation like loving kindness or compassion or even the breath, for example. But the mind kind of anchors itself around that object. It doesn't become the object. It doesn't focus, its, focus itself on the object. It's just sort of circulating around the object. And in doing so, there's an open awareness. This open awareness is very similar to Rigpa in Dzogchen and Mahamudra. So it's a, it's a type of awareness where the mind is very open, very collected, and just seeing things as they really are when they arise and pass away. So in Pali, this is known as yatta bhutta uh, da, uh, jnana dasanam, yatta bhutta jnana dasanam, which is the knowledge and vision of reality as it is, or as of things as they really are. And that's a deep level of equanimity that happens when you collect your mind around this object. Since the mind is open and since the attention is open, there is space not only for hindrances to arise, but also insights into how this mind works. When the hindrances arise, what happens is you use the process of right effort within Buddhism. And in the twin practice, it's known as the six R's. And really the six R's are nothing but a, a wonderful way of doing right effort, which is you acknowledge that a hindrance has arisen, some kind of a distraction has arisen, you release your awareness from that, you relax the mind and the body. The relaxed step is really key because what it's doing is, I talked about samskaras earlier and the, the Pali version of samskaras is sankaras, which are translated in English to formations. And formations are like these proto-thoughts and they're like these seeds of karma that arise dependent upon choices you made previously. So when we talk about hindrances, what's happening is, Hindrances arise as a form of old karma because of something you did in a past life or something you did in a previous moment in this life. And instead of fighting and suppressing the hindrance, which when you do, by the way, if you do that, you're repressing it so that when you come out of the concentration practice, you feel wonderful and quite elated, but there's no personality shift. There's no shift in the mind's ability 
to look at what is happening in the wholesome and the unwholesome. So because of that inability to shift and let go, the hindrances pop up again. And, and the analogy I use is basically you take a beach ball and you, you submerge it underwater and you immediately let go of it, it just pops right back up. So there's no real actual change going on as such. So the transformative aspect of this practice is you acknowledge that there's a distraction. You acknowledge that there's a hindrance. And when I mention hindrance, we're talking about really the five general hindrances. We're talking about sensual craving. We're talking about ill will or aversion. We're talking about restlessness and anxiety. We're talking about slot and torpor or dullness of the mind. And we're talking about doubt in the practice or doubt in your capacity to be able to practice. So these might happen in different ways. When you recognize them and you release them and then you relax the mind and body, you're relaxing the karmic formations that give rise to that particular hindrance. When you do that, you come back to the smile. And smiling is an important part of this practice because it's when the mind becomes uplifted quite naturally. And it's an anchor point to return to your object and then continue that process of collectedness and then repeat whenever you get distracted again. That's very interesting. And that's that's a summary there of the six R's, the twin method. I'd like to ask you some questions about that a bit later, actually. You mentioned uh, Yoga Vashista uh, as being yeah. an, quite an interesting one. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. And also around that same time, you said some Shaiva Tantra you were introduced to. I'm curious yeah. uh, what those practices were. Yeah. So, for example, in uh, Yoga Vashista, uh, you know, it's a big book. It's It's a massive volume. And what we found out is... The Yoga Vashishta is a smaller fragment of an even larger volume of text. So there's a lot more unexplored stuff in the Yoga Vashishta. And what I find about the Yoga Vashishta, it's like a syncretic text. And what I mean by that is it uses uh, Kashmir Shaivism, it uses Vedanta, and it uses Buddhism as its platform, as well as yoga itself. So, So it takes all of these different roadmaps and tries to create this its own kind of syncretic tradition from there. And so the Yoga Vashishta has a lot of very fascinating stories, a lot of fascinating ideas about consciousness. Um, and, and it talks about how consciousness is really this awareness that is all pervading. You know, some people call it the Brahman, some people call it, uh, you know, Rigpa, some people call it different names. But the Yoga Vashishta, it's really a dialogue between this king or prince, Rama, and his teacher, Vashishta. And Vashishta was known as one of the rishis, one of the seven uh, rishis in Hindu mythology and in, in the Vedic tradition. So when we talk about the Yoga Vashishta, he goes through seven different levels of understanding. And it starts off uh, very much similar to how you understand this particular world that you see around you with, with its five physical senses and the mind and so on. And it starts to get more and more refined to where it talks about the stages of practice of somebody who starts to do the meditation practice. So he incorporates uh, different parts of Vedanta, uh, specifically talking about reading scripture, reflecting on it, then doing the meditation dependent upon that reflection. That's known as manana, which is reflection. And as you do that, you start to get into a state of what you could say is, you know, disassociation 
maybe that might not be the right word, but it's it's very close, which is you start to disassociate with the world around you because you start to see that it's the world that you see is a projection of your ideas and concepts. The reality that you experience is nothing more than the projection of all of the different ideas and concepts that you've already held before. And you start to let go of those and you start to come to an experience of what's known as Turiya and Turiya Tita. And this is really coming from the, uh, the, one of the Upanishads. It's the Manduka Upanishad or the Mandukya. I, I always get confused by the, the two, Manduka, Mandukya, but it's one of those two. And in that particular Upanishad, uh, it talks about the secret of Om. And what they're talking about is Om is made up of uh, four components, actually, four separate sounds. There's A, there's U, there's Ma, and then there's silence. And so the A is related to the waking state of mind. The U is related to the dreaming state of mind. The Ma is the dreamless, and the silence is beyond that. And so beyond that is Turiya. It, that Turiya comes from the word uh, chaturya, the fourth state. And that state is very similar to Sahaja Samadhi, where your mind is so mindful that it's actually still alert, not only in the waking state, but also in the dreamless, uh, dreaming state as well as the dreamless state. And the understanding is that this particular mindfulness or awareness is really your true nature. And, and so the Yoga Vashista goes through that process of explaining it through very interesting stories. There's one interesting story about this, uh, this uh, sage who was in one lifetime a crow, where he was able to transform into a crow, and then he lived through different eons. And there's a story of where he meets what's known as a space yogi, and it's translated as a space yogi. And he has this contraption where he lives in this sort of like a UFO kind of thing. And he's orbiting the earth and he's looking at the earth and he watches it all throughout, you know, the different eons. And then when it's time to come back down, he comes back down and time has passed. So there's a lot of very trippy, if you will, concepts in the Yoga Vashista that talk about space and time, uh, that talk about, you know, the time dilation, not only in terms of the physics of it, but also the idea that, you know, when you go travel vast distances from one planet to the other, there is a difference in the way you experience time and how people on earth would experience time. So that's all talked about. Uh, they talk about uh, things like, you know, just as we have the experience of this world as we are living on it in this, on this planet, there's an experience of bacteria and protozoa that are living off of us. And then he talks about it on a super macro level where he talks about how there are beings living on different galaxies. So it's a very cosmic trip and I would recommend it, but it's a, it's a long read. It's a huge, huge read. It took me a good two years to go through it, you know? So uh, that's the Yoga Vishista. And then within, within, let's say Tantra, I mean, when we talk about Tantra, we have to understand, you know, there's this idea that Tantra has to do with sexuality and there are there is some aspects of that when it comes to sexuality but tantra is really all it really means is technique we have three different words we have mantra we have tantra and we have yantra mantra is the 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 concentration of the mind using a specific syllable let's say or specific sound 
Tantra is the technique through which you do that process. And Yantra is these different mechanisms that you can use. Like, for example, uh, you can use Rudraksha beads. Uh, you could use mercury. And I've gone through this process of seeing how mercury is solidified using certain kinds of herbs so that it, it's, it's used uh, as a carrier for energies. And so there's different kinds of amulets and different kinds of crystals and different kinds of metals that you can use, which is that process of yantra. So I've, I've seen what are known as the Siddha yogis. Actually, you uh, take solidified mercury in their hand and take certain kinds of herbs that are found only in South India and parts of the Himalayas. And they mix that up. And what it does is it kind of purifies the mercury and it creates this little kind of uh, gelatinous ball, if you will. And then they do other kinds of processes. They chant mantras into it. And then it becomes this very dense metal ball. And the understanding is that within Siddha tradition, you can actually elevate that mercury to create consciousness in it, conscious energies. And you can make it into your guru, if you will. So I've seen uh, different kinds of mercury balls or solidified mercury do different kinds of things. So you can use them to awaken psychic faculties. You can use them to elevate your mental level and elevate the Kundalini and things like that. Now in, in Tantra specifically, uh, I was introduced to a text which is known as the uh, Vigyan Bhairava Tantra. And that goes through uh, something like 112 different kinds of meditation techniques. So when we talk about Tantra, what it really is, is using technique to get to these different levels. Uh, and the different levels include things like just the body level, uh, the mental level, the consciousness level. And because we're talking about Shaivism here, their understanding is the ultimate is to unify Shakti and Shiva. And when we talk about Shakti, what we're talking about is the creative force of the mind, which is also understood as Kundalini, and that Shiva is here. And so what you're doing is you're re uh, reaching into the Kundalini and bringing it up so that Shakti and Shiva are unified, and you get to a state of Shiva consciousness, if you will. You get to a state. But what I will say is whether you call it Krishna consciousness, whether you call it Shiva consciousness, whether you call it Brahman or whatever it might be, these are all the same kinds of um, conscious, conscious experiences that you have. And so, and, and so the Shiva Bhairav Tantra, uh, or the Vigyan Bhairav Tantra, I should say, uh, is a dialogue between Shiva and Shakti. And Shakti, or Parvati, uh, as she's also known, she's talking with Shiva and she's asking him, you know, what is the ultimate secret of reality? And he says, you know, if you really want to understand the true nature of reality, you have to go through a process of Tantra. And so it's Vigyan Bhairava Tantra really means the science and technique of Bhairava. Bhairava is another word for Shiva, which means the terrible one or the one who is uh, awesome or however you want to put it. And so these techniques are very interesting because they, they talk about using the breath uh, in some ways, they talk about, you know, if you're in a vehicle, start to notice the motion of the vehicle in relation to your own body. And you start to get into this kind of rhythm. And that rhythm allows your mind to become very hypnotic and concentrated and then gets into that state of consciousness. There's another technique where you lie down on the grass 
and you're watching the sky, the blue sky, and you start to lose complete awareness and your consciousness becomes like the sky. So they're very, very cool and very interesting techniques. I would definitely recommend if people want to try it out, uh, they should do it, but obviously they should do it under the guidance of somebody who has a certain level of mastery with these texts. And what was the lineage of, of that you were uh, introduced to that text? Yeah, so I was actually introduced to it by, uh, believe it or not, by Osho, uh, by the lineage of Osho. <laughs> uh, I, I have a lot of good friends who used to be students of Osho, or as Rajneesh, as he's known. And so he introduced a lot of his own practices, like uh, the mystic rose practice and different kinds of meditation techniques. But he did a great discourse on, or a series of discourses on this particular uh, text. And so the lineage that I learned it from was really through that lineage of Rajneesh. And the, the his, those discourses, I think, were collected, if I'm not mistaken, into the Book of Secrets. Is that uh, two That's volumes? That's right. Of, uh... That's right. Of his particular take on on that text. Yes. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Um, you mentioned you also explored Sokchen and Mahamudra. Of course, Sokchen and Mahamudra often emphasize the importance of a, a guru, a realized guru in transmission and yeah. so on. So I'm curious what exploration you did with Sokchen and Mahamudra, and if you uh, worked with any gurus of those traditions. Yeah, in particular, I worked with uh, Lama Lina. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but uh, she's mostly doing Mahamudra now. But uh, she's a very interesting character because she has she's very uh, very spirited, very fiery. Um, and I had a chance to really go through the preliminary pointing out instructions. But before that, there's a whole process that you go through, which are different kinds of purif purification processes, if you will. Um, so I learned a lot of that before really getting into the pointing out instructions. And the pointing out instructions should be done with, as you said, a, a, a guru, because they will be able to really understand your mindset and, and the way to contextualize how to point out certain things about Dzogchen and how to recognize Rigpa, the true nature of, let's say, your consciousness. So I studied with her for about three years before really going through that process. And what I found is, this experience of Rigpa also, it's it's very similar to Sahaja Samadhi or Dharma Mega Samadhi, where you come to a point where you realize that awareness is just, just always there. It's always there. It's it's pristine awareness that you, you can just rest in, if you will. And you don't need to make heads or tails about it. You know, you just allow the mind to rest within mind, if you will. Now, in terms of the context of the twin practice, we have that experience as well, but we have it at a certain level where we go into the different jhanas. And at the very last part, we have this thing called the signless state, the signless samadhi. And that is really similar to Rigpa. Um, so that's my lineage with regards to uh, Rigpa hmm. or, or Dzogchen and Mahamudra. That's fascinating. And uh, you touched actually on that comparison between Rigpa and some of the states of TWIM and uh, first glance, they do seem rather similar. So I'm curious now in your story, we're coming to your encounter with, with David uh, Johnson and then also Bhante Bimlaramsi, of course, having attained Rigpa or realized Rigpa, uh, you're nodding there. Why then were you still looking? 
we could say what yeah, was it yeah. about yeah. what was it about the, uh, the twim practice you know now now we're going right back to the suitors again you've you've uh, <laughs> been attaining rigpa and the great perfection and so on and now you're going to go right back to the suitors again so can you yeah. explain uh why that what 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 happened there what was your yeah, uh, process yeah. So, so the thing is, like I said, Rikpa is very, very much similar in terms of that open awareness. And by that time, uh, I would say this was probably the time I was 20, 25 or 26. And at that time, I became sort of like a scientist. So I was very much interested in kind of exploring different kinds of territories of spirituality. Um the interesting thing was with my mind, uh, it was never attached to a particular school of thought. It was never attached to a particular philosophy. Uh, at that point in time, my intention was to explore all facets of spiritual practice. And what I did was basically studied uh, on my own, going back into the Yoga Sutras at the age of 25, comparing it with Rikpa, comparing it with other kinds of traditions. And my, my whole goal there was to be able to accumulate as much in terms of the way of different techniques so that I could understand if somebody came to me and said, well, this is the tradition I come from, or this is where I've been so far, I can immediately recognize and use, let's say, the language or the different context to be able to kind of nudge them along the path and tell them, well, okay, have you considered it this way? Have you considered it that way? So it wasn't that I was necessarily... Uh, looking for anything, but at the same time, I wanted to see what else was out there. Uh, what else is, you know, out there in the, in the field of spirituality. And interestingly enough, metta practice was not something I did uh, necessarily. So I did get introduced to metta practice from Sharon Salzberg, but I was looking for other techniques and things like that. And then I saw Bhante Vimaramsi's video and uh, I tried it for myself. And what I immediately recognize is when I started getting to the first and second and third jhana, wow, this is exactly like, uh, well, not exactly, but in terms of the qualitative experience, it's it's almost like the samadhi experiences in the yoga sutras. And then he talks about opening the mind and keeping it aware, uh, keeping it open in terms of its awareness. Okay, that's a lot like Rigpa. That's a lot like Dzogchen. You're not, uh, you know, it's interesting because in Dzogchen, you start off with practices that keep your mind quite collected, keep your mind quite concentrated, but then it opens you up to Rigpa, which is a completely different experience altogether. So I think that part of the mind started to compare, like how is this very similar to different practices and how is it different? And the main difference I see about this practice is there's not a lot of emphasis on concentration there's more emphasis on understanding mindfulness. And if you don't, if you remember, I think Bhante might've talked about this, which is his understanding or his definition of mindfulness is remembering to observe how mind's attention moves. That's an interesting definition because all you're saying is you're getting into that metacognitive awareness, if you will, which is mind watching how it just moves. So that's a lot uh, uh, very similar to Rigpa in that sense. You're just allowing thoughts to self-arise and pass away without any interference, without any interaction. You're just allowing things to submerge back into that true nature of Rigpa. Now, you know, when I got introduced to the metta practice, I did a little bit of it on my own, but I decided to get some guidance under David 
uh, David Johnson with the online retreat. So I did it. Uh, I read the the book on on the practice and and I started doing it. And you know it was interesting because I I gave a report to David and I said you know he asked uh, you know there's a questionnaire and it says you know how long was it before you lost uh, your your awareness of the object of meditation and how long was it before you got distracted and things like that. How long were you on your object of meditation? And I said well I was on my object of meditation for about 20 minutes before the mind got distracted in this process. And he didn't believe me. He said, okay, well, I, I think you might be misunderstanding uh, what the questionnaire is asking. I said, no, but that's that's my experience. He said, well, let's see what happens in a couple more days. Um, so I did the same thing. And I said, well, this is what I experienced. And, you know, I went to the fourth jhana and I experienced this. And he, and he, he kind of checkmarked in his own mind all of the different things that they're looking for when it talks about the fourth jhana. And he said, yeah, okay, fine. You're in the fourth jhana. Now you do this practice. So I did an intermediary practice, which is known as breaking down the barriers, which is basically, it's actually, interestingly enough, rooted in the Vasudhi Maga, uh, this particular practice, which is ju just an intermediate practice, which is you go through different categories of people and you send them loving kindness. And then from there on, you start radiating loving kindness and compassion and the other Brahma Viharas. And it's a natural progression. And then I had another experience uh, of the Arupa Jhanas. Um, and then I had the different attainment experiences. Uh, and I think uh, in the online retreat, he was quite surprised to see that that was, that was the case. And I, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he had, he and Bhante had some level of disbelief in, in you know, the reports that I was, I was giving them. But some of the reports that I gave them are actually uh, in his book. So you, you might be able to read them um, in the Path to Nibbana. Um, but he, he then had me say, okay, fine, you, got, you went through this practice and uh, wonderful. And then, you know, a couple of months later, I said, is there anything left? Like, is there anything more I should be doing with this practice? He said, well, if you want, you can start doing determinations, which is you can like start to go into any jhana for a determined amount of time. And then you can go through successive jhanas or you can skip jhanas and do all kinds of things like that. And then ultimately go into Nirodha and then determine how long you want to get into Nirodha. And I have the email exchanges and it's quite funny because he says, well, we can't stump you there either. It seems like you were able to you know, ex do exactly that. And he said, hey, would you like to try doing past life work? You know, Would you like trying to do past lives and looking at different realms and the threefold knowledge. I said, yeah, I could try doing that. Um, so we did that and a little tidbit there. So I think Bhante uh, had spoken about it in one of his retreats, but he said, you know, so we had this person and he was referring to uh, oneself and he said, you know, uh, we couldn't stump him. We, we tried giving him all kinds of different kinds of determinations. And finally we said, okay, what's the longest you can sit for? Let's see. And at that point in time, I sat in cessation for 42 hours, sorry, 52 hours, 52 hours. And uh, he said, oh, only 52 hours. Can you sit for longer? Uh, you know, so I started sitting for even longer periods of time in cessation. Um, and then afterwards, then he had me go into past lives. And the past life stuff was very interesting things. Um, you know, you look at uh, how karma works and you get a deeper understanding of what's known as dependent origination. Now, it could just be because of the way I was practicing. It could just be the, because of my own 
interpretation or the way I was understanding Tibetan Buddhism and things like that. But I think the key difference of going back to the suttas, the missing element here was the understanding of dependent origination. Because dependent origination really gives you clarity on how mind builds the world around you. It gives sort of like the zeros and ones of the matrix, and you start to get an understanding of it. So when you get an attainment, what happens is in the process of Nibbana, you go through cessation and you come out of it, and then you start to see certain things. And these certain things are the building blocks of your perception of reality. And these building blocks are the different links of dependent origination. That was, I would say, a key thing that I was missing from my previous practices. And it really helped to understand, okay, this is how craving would, ar would arise. This is how feeling arises. This is how stimulation of the senses arises and so on. And it had a different understanding of consciousness. So the Rigpa experience itself, I realized, using this whole process of the jhanas in the twin practice, is very much the signless state. When we talk about the signless state, it's a state where there is no sense of conceit. There's no more sense of I am there. And it is an objectless meditation, if you will. It's almost like there's just pure awareness. But it's still a conditional state. To use the words of the Buddha in the suttas, it's volitionally produced. And whatever is volitionally produced is of the nature of being impermanent and therefore not being self and therefore should be let go of. So when you let go of that very subtle formation of I am, you get to what is basically the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. That is that nirodha state. When you come out of it, you then see the links of dependent origination and you experience nibbana. You experience nirvana, as you say. So when I, when I went through this process of uh, the twin practice, that was the missing element I saw. The key element I saw was the understanding of dependent origination. And everything kind of just locked into place. And now when you see the world, you, you no longer take it personal. You no longer take it as being self. It's just an, a series of impersonal causes and conditions. And you even see that even seeing into past lives, that experience as well is just a process of, of impersonal causes and conditions through the links of dependent origination and how you react to that causes you further rebirth, not only on the macro level from one lifetime to another, but from one moment to another. Uh, so for the Arahat, for example, dependent origination still continues, but there's no more ignorance. The Arahat no longer has any conceit, no longer has any ignorance, no longer has any craving. So when we talk about dependent origination, it's cut off at the level of feeling. So any old karma, if you will, the effects of previous choices that were made before full awakening are still to be experienced. And this is the understanding, whether it's in the Vedantic tradition, whether it's in the yogic tradition, or whether it's in the Buddhist tradition, it's all the same thing in that sense that the karma is to be still experienced. But the difference here is because there's no more ignorance and craving, there's no latching onto it, no further fuel to cause further new karma for further rebirth. Yeah, fascinating. Well, you've said a lot of remarkable things there. One aspect of uh, the interview, as you uh, as you're referring to there with Bhante Vimla Ramsey, uh, a few episodes ago, 
Now, he talked about the four-path model, this idea of four levels of attainment, starting at stream enter and going, as you said, all the way up to Arhat. And you also referred there uh, in, in that answer to path attainments. And it seems like you had them in fairly rapid succession. I'm curious, can you remember each of those path attainments? And would it be possible to, to recount those moments? Yes, yes. So the very first time I had no idea what I was doing. Like I kind of stumbled into uh, the first attainment, if you will. And, and what that means is I was going through the level of nothingness, which is the seventh uh, jhana. It's, it's a level of nothingness and there's deep equanimity. And the mind was just observing mind at that point in time. And then suddenly it all just switched off. I was not even aware that it switched off until it came back on. So it's like the mind went for like a nap or just blacked out or whatever it happened. And I, and the first thing I remember the mind going was like, what just happened? And in that process of looking at it, what I saw was these little tiny flickers, these tiny little lights or figures or circular things. And what, what those were, were the first samskaras, the first formations that were arising and creating the process of the rest of the links of dependent origination to arise. And I noticed immediately that I felt this amazing joy and this amazing relief that, that was there. And the way David explained it to me was, well, okay, you experienced all of that. And he said, okay. And he said, I think you went for a little swim, which is his way of saying that, you know, you had stream entry, you entered the stream, if you will. And I didn't make anything of it. But what I did remember was when I came out of it, the world was hyper real. Like the colors were sharper, sounds were louder, um, food tasted be better, smells were sharper, the senses were just, you know, hyper aware. It was like I was living in some kind of 4D or five dimensional reality, just floating around. And, and for the first couple of days, I was just like that. And he said, okay, congratulations, go back and sit and continue on. I had the same similar experience, but this time the links were much sharper, much, much sharper. And I started getting fascinated by what is it that I'm seeing? So I asked him, what is going on exactly? And he explained to me, you're starting to see the links of dependent origination. And because of that, the mind lets go and experiences through that release Nibbana. So then I had the fruition experience. And then I said, okay, that's, that's great and stuff. The thing about this is I had no kind of prior knowledge about these things. And I think that was kind of beneficial for me because I didn't have expectations of what, what, what to see for, what to look for, or, you know, the idea of the four path model and things like that. I just didn't have any clarity on that. I was more interested in doing the practice and definitely surprised by that blackout state of the mind, if you will, where the mind completely goes blank. So I did it again and I said, okay, well, I had another experience and I had two of those experiences uh, in one day. And I think I, that was when uh, David and Bonte were probably starting to get into disbelief because they said, how is it possible that somebody could do this? And my only explanation is because I had that beginner's mind, that mind of no expectation. And I would, I would venture to say, and from my own experience in teaching people now and, and people who talk about it is, I would venture to say that it's much easier to stumble into stream entry than it is to get into the higher states, because at that point, when you're stumbling into it, you're not, you don't know what to look out for. But now that you know the, the roadmap, now you know where the signposts are, you're anticipating 
you know, what's going to happen. And the problem is that anticipation is counterintuitive for you entering into cessation and then experiencing Nibbana. So it's, it's easier doing it the first time than it is the second, third, fourth, or, you know, uh, other times after that. But then anyway, I went through this process a few more times. And every time I went through it, what I realized was my understanding of dependent origination became even much more clear, uh, much clearer to the point that there came a point where it's very similar to that Yoga Sutra uh, experience I was talking about, where space time freezes and you're able to see different moments in time. There came a point at that particular attainment was you could see dependent origination, but then it froze and you could like literally go back a step and see how ceasing this, everything else ceases. So you are seeing the arising and passing away of dependent origination and then the reverse order of that and then the forward and reverse order of that as well. So it was quite a, quite a trippy thing, if you will, uh, to see that. But then when you come back out of it, what you notice is there is so much immense relief and that relief is from having broken the fetters you break the fetters and you no longer experience the same reality as other people experience it the way they do you see through reality and the way i explain it is it's like you have been unplugged from the matrix but you come back into the matrix and you can live in the matrix but you know that this is the matrix like you don't have any attachment and you or in other words you are living in the world, but are not of the world, so to speak. So what happens is you start to see dependent origination in people, and you can start to see karmic streams. Now, I'm just talking from experience uh, in the way I've seen it. Maybe people might see it in different ways, because students have talked about how they've seen it in a way where it's like this quantum computer where they see all of these different streams of reality coming together. You know, and, and they see frames of reality and, and things like that. So when you get into these attainments, what's really happening is you're getting a refined understanding of how mind really works and how this reality is fully, completely, undoubtedly impersonal. And therefore, you no longer take it seriously anymore. You you have the bliss of that attainment. You have the bliss of fruition a bliss of Nibbana. And that, you know, is the ultimate, that's the ultimate reality. So you start to see how karma works and, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't affect uh, the mind in a way, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral, it just sees it as a continual unfolding of reality until, you know, the dissolution of the five aggregates. Hmm. When you s said there that you had the experience twice, uh, twice in the same day, uh, do, uh, am I to take that to mean that you attained to the second and third paths within the same day? Well, the, the second path, the path and the fruition of the second. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. And then later on, subsequently, uh, the rest of the paths and, and fruitions. So that's basically what we're talking at that point is, uh, I mean, I kind of summarize it, but what I'm talking about there is your, your level of understanding of dependent origination and the clarity becomes oh, yes. even greater. And what happens is you start to realize, especially at the final attainment, which is really what we're talking about, which happened much later on, is you realize 
that even the relief, even the joy, even this process of Nibbana that is experienced is impersonal as well. So you get a deep experience of anatta, a deep experience of not self, in that what was happening prior to that is when you feel that joy after experiencing it, people then have a tendency to cling to that joy. They have a tendency to add a sense of I am to it, have a tendency of saying that this is my joy. But what happens is there is in the suttas known as the contact with Nibbana or the contact with the Nibbana element. And this contact is known as uh, the, the emptiness contact, the signless contact, and the undirected contact. The reason is because it's making contact with Nibbana, which is empty of self, which has no signs, it's not an object, and it's undirected because there's no intention to get to it. It just happens when it happens. When causes and conditions are right for that experience to happen, it will happen, and the unconditioned occurs, so to speak. So when that happens, everybody makes the contact when they go through the path and fruition, the different kinds of path attainments. But the difference at the final attainment is there's no longer that joy of taking it personal. You see it as being an impersonal contact. You see that contact for what it actually is. And because of that, the five fetters, the five higher fetters of conceit and restlessness, well, I'll say that restlessness the, the craving for form existence, the craving for formless existence are all dependent upon conceit, dependent upon that sense of I am. And then ignorance is destroyed where then that conceit and that ignorance being destroyed, there is then the understanding of this being a completely impersonal process. So what I'm saying here is when you have contact with the Nibbana element, that feeling of relief, that feeling of joy, that's not the that's not the unconditioned itself. It's the experience have uh, it's the experience after the unconditioned. The joy and the the relief that you feel happens within the context of dependent origination. Now, what happens is in prior attainments, people or beings will take that and cling to it, which means not not all of the fetters are completely destroyed. But if you see that as also being impersonal and also being impermanent then the further links of craving and clinging and being are no longer there. And because there's no longer fuel for that, they completely fade away. So that's why I say with the Arahat, there's only the formations or the Sankaras up until the level of feeling in the context of dependent origination. And ignorance is destroyed because one has already seen the impersonal process and totally understood the Four Noble Truths in such a way that you contextualize everything that you're seeing through that lens of the Four Noble Truths. Fascinating. You mentioned uh, past lives, and David, in his email introducing you, mentioned uh, also that you had the experience of seeing your past lives. And I'm curious if you could say how that happened. You mentioned it actually in, also in uh, your previous uh, yogic training, that there were methods for that as well. So I'm wondering if it was in both places uh, that you did that, uh, in both systems that you did that, or just one. And uh, what did you see? He mentioned lifetimes of, as Himalayan yogis and also in other realms and so on. So I'm curious what you saw. And I'm also curious if you can, as the suttas report the Buddha to be able to do, for example, see others' past lives. Right. Right. Uh, so, yes, uh, in both traditions, the reading of past lives happens, but I only was able to do it with this particular tradition. 
I believe uh, I, I'm only I'm only speculating here, but I would say that if anybody wants to do it from the yogic tradition, they can go right ahead and try it out as it's talked about in the Yoga Sutras, because there is a, a lot of similarity in terms of what that technique or process is. And what that process is, is basically you are going back in your memory bit by bit. And it's it's basically what you're doing is you're accessing the samskaras, you're accessing the different memory points. And it's like these memory points are like a game that you played and you saved. So these are points of in the game where you've saved uh, that particular point in the game. And then you start to rewind. So the way it's kind of seen is everything starts to go very fast in terms of the rewind. And you can kind of pause and then explore one particular lifetime and start to see how karma was arising in that particular lifetime. So this is done usually after a certain period of time when somebody has certain level of mastery. I mean, I kind of, as a teacher, I would recommend that people have at least one or two attainments, if not three. Uh, and that's just my personal preference, let's say, so to speak, because that's when then people are really mastering the jhanas. That's when people are really mastering the ability to experience the fourth jhana. And then, of course, even doing the determinations, as we were talking about earlier. Because you need the fourth jhana, uh, you need the equanimity of the fourth jhana to be able to go through past lives, because there's a lot of things you might uh, see that you might not like, you know. Uh, so people have done that and they kind of uh, feel like that was them in that past life. And then you have to kind of walk them through it from the context of dependent origination and tell them, you know, well, was that really yourself or is this the self now or, you know, what's really going on? And they start reflecting and realize, okay, that wasn't really me. And this isn't really me here either, you know, so it was all a series of processes of a karma that was coming to play. So my experience had been where I had seen different lives uh, as, as you said, a Himalayan yogi. And there's a particular story in which I, I, I mean, I talked to Dave, I talked to David about it. So he probably told you about this or at least briefly gave an explanation. I, I recollect my immediate past life as a Himalayan yogi. Uh, and I recall, interestingly enough, seeing my parents in that lifetime, my current parents as they are in this life. I recall seeing them. And I remember being uh, invited uh, to their wedding uh, reception as a Himalayan yoga, uh, you know, just giving alms and things like that. And I blessed them and I said, you know, you're gonna have a son and things like that. And what I made the determination was, I would go on to become their, their child. So the story is that I, in that life, basically left the body and then took birth in this particular life uh, as their child. And I actually talked to my parents about this a little bit. And I said, was there, uh, uh, was there anybody who was interesting that visited, you know, their wedding and things like that? I was like, yeah, why? Well, was he, was he like, a, like a sadhu? Was he like a yogi or something? It was like, and they said, yeah, there was somebody like that. And there was somebody who came in and they said, you know, they, they, they blessed us and they said, you know, you're going to be blessed with a son. And uh, he walked away and he left and he was never seen after that. Nobody knew what happened with him after that. So that was an interesting experience to see, you know, to see your parents in a previous life as somebody else. It's a little, it's a little uh, trippy, if you will, you know. I, I mean, I, I keep using the word trippy because it is really a big, massive trip when you go through these past lives. 
um, then you start to see the arising and passing away of different beings according to their karma. So you can actually start to see what were the different karmic formations that led them into, let's say, the earth plane or the human existence into a higher existence, whether it was a, a deva plane or a brahma loka or an arupa plane or whatever it might be, or even lower existences. So you can start to play around with that. You can look at you can look at the different realms as being as being like spectrums uh, or, or or spectrums of light, if you will. So we only see or experience right now in this earth plane or on the human level all of this. Like whatever we're seeing right now is just a portion of what might be out there, and a lot of stuff that I've experienced can be kind of rooted in mythology because what you start to see is some of the devas and some of the uh, the different mystical entities that uh, you see in norse mythology or vedic mythology or greek mythology and what you realize is other people also experience them and they were interpreting it within their cultural context so these entities for sure are there and at the same time i would say you know nobody has to believe this stuff by no means do you need to believe my account or anybody's account. All you have to do is see for yourself if you're very interested. And there's a process of doing that and you get to it and you see it for yourself. That's why I say, you know, whether it's this practice or any other practice in Buddhism, it doesn't say that you have to believe certain things. It's a very empirical uh, system where you do it for yourself and you see it for yourself. You mentioned Naroda Samapati and this ability to enter into a state of more or less suspended animation, no breathing, no heart uh, beat, etc. And you said you were able to do that for 52 hours on your first attempt. I'm curious what your record is. And I understand also that you've been studied doing this. Is that correct? Yeah. What is yeah. your record for neurodesamapati? And, and can you say a little bit about the scientific studies that are being done sure. on you? Sure. Uh, so I have to point out, I think I started off uh, Basically, just a couple of hours and 52 hours was my old record. Um, but then I was able to do it for up to six days at a time. So being in Niroda for, for about six days at a time. And this was when I had a chance to go back to the Himalayas and spend some time. Uh, there's actually a story about that, which is I went back to the old cave that I used to go to when I was 16. And uh, an old friend of mine, he stayed nearby, maybe you know a few kilometers away at his house. And I said, you know, I, I'd like to come and spend some time there. And if it's okay, you know, once a week, I'll come stay at your house for food and, and then go back and do my meditative practices. He said, that's fine. That's okay. Uh, but here's the thing that happened. So I, I went into Niroda and uh, was sitting there. I made a determination to go into it for about six days. And he was then informed, and I was not aware of this, obviously, but he he was informed that the pandemic hit. And so everything was going to be on lockdown. And so if you were found outside of lockdown, you would be in trouble. And so he was very much concerned. So he came to the cave with a couple of his friends and he tried to wake me up and he couldn't wake me up. So they had to actually, as he, as he describes it, he took the body or he thought I was dead. Basically he took the corpse and laid it on the bed and he sent a message to uh, David Johnson. And he said, you know, uh, this is what happened. What do we do? And, and David said, just keep him warm. He'll be fine. Just wait, you know, and then 
couple of days later, I find myself, I wake up and I'm in this bedroom and I thought, okay, I've done it now. I've, you know, I've gone past the seven day mark somehow. And now I'm, I'm in some other realm or something. But then I saw my friend and I realized what happened when he told me that the lockdown was going on. So you have to stay indoors now. You can't go into the cave and keep walking out. So I basically continued my practice with that uh, while I was staying at his house in my own, in my own room. And the, and what I did was I'd go into Niroda for about six days, well, six days. And then the, the last day I would just have my meal and talk with people and do some teaching and then go back and continue on for another six days. And this went on for quite some time. Um, and what happened is uh, there's a Muse device, a device called Muse, which is like a, it reads your brain wave or whatever it might be. It's like an, it's a consumer level uh, EEG technology. Um, and it's, it's kind of rudimentary in the sense that, uh, you know, it kind of is able to see what's going on with the brains and the brain waves and things like that. So we did this and I did this for myself. And what we detected was there was some kind of a flat line uh, with the brain, uh, brain waves. And also that the heartbeat had uh, basically reduced. Now it's interesting because when then they did the study, the way they did the study was they, they found out about the study through that Muse uh, report. And somebody who went and went to a party in the Netherlands, they said, you know, there's this, there's this interesting case. And this guy said, well, I know a neuroscientist who might be interested in studying this. So they said, well, let's try it out. And they approached me and they said, we'd like to do it. And I said, okay, fine. And uh, they, they did th uh, two different studies over the course of two days. The first study was what they called predictive modeling. And what they wanted to see was what happens in the state of Niroda when it comes to the level of perception and, and feeling. In other words, is the brain still active in recognizing certain sounds and things like that? So they, went, they made me go through a process of the waking state, focused attention, uh, just listening to things, and then going into Niroda. And they did about, I think, four or five cycles of that. The second day was a sleep study. So they had me just be in the waking state for some time. Then they had me going through the, the sleep state uh, for a 90 minute, basically a nine, 90 minute sleep cycle. And then a 90 minute uh, session of Niroda Samapati. And right now there's still some initial findings coming out from that research. I mean, it's gonna take some time because they did a lot of data uh, gathering. They, it had 64 electrodes on my head. I call that thing the octopus because it looks like a big octopus. And uh, they had me uh, hooked up to some kind of uh, respiratory belt to read how the respira respiration rate was going on, uh, blood oxygen levels, temperature levels, skin conductivity. conductivity. Um, I think it was close to about 80 or 90 sensors all throughout my body and uh, even my feet uh, my chest and my back and so on. Anyway, we had a chance to speak with the scientists and there were basically two or three things so far that they discovered from that, uh, from that research that was very interesting to them. The first thing was I told them that my intention would be that at the 10 minute mark, the mind's going to go into Niroda and at the 90 minute mark, it's going to come out. So what they found was exactly at the 10 minute mark, everything stopped, started dropping in terms of the respiratory, respiratory rate, the heart rate, the blood pressure, all of those things. 
And then exactly at the 90 minute mark, everything came back up again. And they were kind of spooked by that because what is that process of intention and determination that allows the mind to do that? Because as we understand it, time is subjective. So how, how is it? It's somehow the, the body clock, you know, the bodily formations are so attuned that they're able to know or be able to say, okay, at the 10 minute mark, you're going back down and then you're going back up at the 90 minute mark. The second uh, interesting finding was that there was absolutely zero movement because in meditation as well, they might be able to detect certain levels of eye movement and things like that. But here was basically absolute zero, not even the eyes were moving or anything. The third finding was interesting in relation to the brain waves. Now they were concerned because what they said was, well, we saw the flat line on the Muse device and we were concerned that if we see a flat line uh, in the brainwave scanner, you might die or we might've killed you and that would be a problem. So uh, we are hoping that that's not what's going to happen. But what they actually did find because, the, because of the brainwave scanner being so, so much uh, you know, more intricate in terms of its findings, in terms of its, uh, well, and they were using machine learning to be able to, so it was a very fascinating uh, piece of research because this research is part of a larger project uh, with relation to meditation and memory and perception. And they're using artificial intelligence and machine learning to come up with the way that they scan the brain and also what they find in relation to that. So the third finding that, that came about from our discussion, initial discussion was this. They found that in the waking state, there was more delta brainwaves, which are associated with deep sleep. But what they found was in the sleep state, there was zero delta waves. There was more an alertness. And they actually asked me after that, they said, were you asleep while, I mean, were you actually asleep? Because what we found was we were not able to find those spindle waves that indicate that the brain is now into REM sleep or into this particular sleep. But rather what we found was that there was a level of mindfulness or a level of alertness in the way of alpha and beta waves. And I said, yeah, that's the way I sleep. My, my sleep pattern is I'm able to observe the different levels of sleep. I can know when the mind is in waking state, in light sleep, in REM, and even in deep sleep. So that's really going back to what we were talking earlier about the Turiya stage, where you can actually see the different levels of the waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep states. And then what they found was in Niroda, uh, there was basically a very, very um, wide amplitude wave, which was even deeper than delta wave. So it was closer to almost non-existent. It was quite, uh, quite interesting to see that. And then what they saw was it was much deeper than a level of sleep that you would find with a normal individual, let's say. So if you were to scan the brainwave of somebody who was asleep, you would find you know, some level of delta activity during the dream phase, uh, sorry, during the, the deep sleep phase. But here what they found was there was even more active delta. And so they thought, well, maybe he's just taking a nap while he's in Nero the Samapati. But then they made connections with the respiratory rate and the heart rate and so on. And what they realized was, no, 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 the body was still active. The body was still, uh, you know, still doing its processes, but the brain was at such a deep level that it was even deeper than deep sleep.
And did they detect the cessation of respiration and heartbeat? That was an interesting thing, thing to note was they did not. What they noticed was actually that the heart rate was uh, at a fairly normal level uh, compared to a waking state. Same with the respiratory, respiratory rate. And the way that we interpret that in the suttas is in uh, one particular sutta, there is a sutta where somebody asks the question, well, what's the difference between somebody who's dead uh, and somebody who is in Nirodha Samapati? And what they say is there's still heat and vitality in one who still is alive and in Nirodha, and their vital formations are still active. And so the way I understand that, or the way I'm interpreting to say, say that is that the metabolism, that's the heat and vitality, is still continuing. And the vital formations, which have to do with the autonomic nervous system in relation to the heart rate and other components, are still functioning, but albeit maybe at a lower level, but they're still functioning. So when Vimal Aranzi makes the claim that an anagami can sit for up to seven days without respiration and heart rate, um, you, you, don't, you don't take that to be the case. Or for instance, when your friends thought you were dead, in the cave, presumably because they couldn't detect a pulse and it didn't appear you were breathing, I presume. Um, but yeah. uh, how do you square the claims made by Bhante Vimla Ramsey with the scientific data of your own uh, state of Naroda? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, with, with regards to Bhante, I can't speak for him, but I, I think he was probably talking about it based on, based on initial findings with the muse, because that is what the muse detected, was it detected basically a flat line and it detected a heart rate of about i think it was two, uh, like a beat or a minute or something like that it was quite quite uh quite low but i think uh, you know i would say that science uh has shown that there is something else altogether that's going on i also want to give the caveat that that's just me that's just me as one subject so they want to continue to do further research by replicating that and possibly finding more people uh, to be able to get a better data points and then really conclude if they can, what's really going on. So I, I would say, you know, in the case of Abante is saying, he probably said that based on the news findings. But now that we have newer findings, we're seeing, let's say, better data points because of the fact that we have sharper tools at our disposal. And they're seeing possibly that the news is showing a flat line, but possibly that with this new data, that the slow amplitude waves are indicative of something that's happening much, much deeper. So uh, I would say, you know, it's just new information that's come out in the last few weeks um, that that uh, might just update what Bante is saying. The flat line of the muse was the brain activity, not your heartbeat and respiration. Is that correct? That was the yeah, that was the the brain activity. So the flat line of the muse isn't real isn't related to your respiration and heartbeat no no the muse well the muse also detects heart rate uh the the new muse that we have it detects uh, heart rate as well so it detected uh something like one or two beats per minute okay so uh of course uh, banta actually also used the example of deepama uh, yeah. an, an anagami who he claims could also do this, go into the states of suspended animation for days at a time. Uh, and he asked her about that himself personally. And it is uh, in, uh, widely said in many of the systems that you've discussed 
the, the cessation of heartbeat and the stopping of respiration for multiple days. That is a classic, um, or, uh, uh, classically understood component of those states. So would you fair to say that perhaps when Bante said that, he wasn't just basing it on your Muse data, which the original one didn't actually even pick up your heart rate and respiration, but probably he was thinking about the traditional accounts and claims of yogis such as Deepama. It is quite possible. It is quite possible because the classical understanding is based on whatever people's experiences, uh, just based on maybe, you know, the heart rate or the pulse is so faint uh, that it's basically undetectable or, you know, it's, it's imperceptible, same with the breathing. And so maybe that's how people start interpreting it. But I, like I said, going back to the Sutta itself, the way I see it, it kind of recontextualizes for me based on these new findings that, in, okay, uh, from a, let's say, classical standpoint, or from just looking at the person trying to detect a heart rate and things like that, uh, maybe it's difficult to detect the heart rate or it, it's uh, it's imperceptible. But with the scientific findings, with the the neuroscientific findings, uh, it recontextualizes it by saying that indeed there are these vital formations still functioning in one who is in cessation. The only difference being that there is no awareness there. Uh, there is there's a lack of consciousness present in there lack of feeling and perception in there. The scientific findings seem to suggest your heart rate and respiration were at normal levels. Right. And so presumably normal levels of heartbeat and respiration are easy to detect, even, even yeah. for people of in the ancient past, right, throughout history. Yeah. It doesn't quite follow, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. So it's, it's very interesting to see what exactly it is that, uh, because they still have more physiological findings uh, that they need to interpret in terms of the, the analysis of the data. But based on the initial findings, this is what we're seeing, which is that there is a normal heart rate. And yes, it would make sense that if somebody does have a fairly normal heart rate, it is quite easy to detect, same with the respiratory rate. So I think we have to wait until we see further data to really understand what actually happened. Mm. It's very interesting that either they're different states, what you're, you're considering to be that state is, is different, or the descriptions are not accurate, or maybe there are different types of states or something like that. And even the experience of your friends who presumably couldn't detect noticeably any heart heart rate and so on. Yeah, that's very interesting. There is, there is one idea here, uh, which is this, the, the reason why the scientists want to replicate the, the study is because their understanding is that it's quite possible that maybe over the course of two or three days, the heart rate might actually slow down. The respiratory rate might actually slow down. The reason being is, you know, if the heart rate suddenly stopped or slowed down, the body would go into shock. So they're speculating or their their hypothesis is for further study that perhaps over the course of two or three days, the body goes into what could be known as like a hibernation mode. Because even with animals, with hibernation, it would take some time for the, for the heart rate, for the blood pressure, for the respiratory rate to start to slow down. So it, it might be possible that way because... We have to also understand when uh, those people in the Himalayas were detecting the body, it had been probably a few days, uh, at least maybe three or four days uh, before they found me in the cave and presumed me to be in a coma or dead. So that might be the case as well. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting idea. That's a very interesting idea. Well, I do admire your uh, willingness to be, as, as you've described it elsewhere, a lab rat for these things, you know, put, to put yourself under the microscope like that. And I also appreciate your candidness and frankness about your experiences. You know, of course, traditionally, maybe it's somewhat cultural and, and there are other reasons for it. The sort of frankness that you're displaying now, it has um, in sometimes been in vogue and other times not been in vogue. And we, I think we can agree that for, for whatever reasons, there are certain uh, time periods where masters would be coy about making such claims. Even today, in fact, I'm not particularly asking if you think that's a good or bad, um, but the sorts of claims you're making and uh, the experiences that you're reporting are at least, it seems at first glance, really remarkable. Mastering various different systems, high systems of contemplation, various different yogic systems, and including the Buddhist system in a very advanced way. Would you say you are a remarkable outlier case in the way you've been able to do that? And if so, to what do you attribute that outlier class? Or would you say that there are others like you, perhaps many others like you, or at least some like you, who are more coy about revealing in such a frank way as you've done, and which I appreciate you doing, they're more coy about that. For instance, do you think there are people, uh, Dzogchen masters um, or masters of Shaiva Tantra or whatever the case might be, who have attained similarly advanced states and are living as you are uh, claiming to be in at the sort of end states of, of many of these systems? And they just won't talk about it because it's not it's just not the done thing to do. I'm curious about that. They say it takes a Buddha to yeah. know a Buddha. So I'm curious yeah. as to your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. I, I would say, you know, I, I think uh, I, I'm not necessarily an outlier because as far as I'm aware, there are a few select people who, who might who might talk about it. And, and I, I realize that, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I'm talking about do seem remarkable. But at the same time, uh, I would say from my limited experience or my limited perspective is that it is possible for everybody to do this. Um, I don't consider this to be a special case by any means, although a lot of the things that we are talking about uh, are elevated to a certain level of secrecy, are elevated to a certain level of supremacy in terms of the practice and mastery and things like that. But at the same time, you know, if I was to talk about the way I look at the world of spirituality is there is some level of benefit. I, I do, I do uh, concur with the understanding that there is some level of benefit to keeping certain things, let's say, private, not necessarily secret, but certain kinds of discussions to be one-on-one, -on -one, you know, for the sake of clarity and for the sake of non-diluting the information that we're talking about so that people can experience it for themselves. At the same time, my goal, I would say, if I were to talk about a goal, is to allow people to say, allow people to see that these states are indeed achievable and they, there shouldn't be a taboo or there shouldn't be a kind of limitation on discussing them, provided, provided that the person talking about them have has actually understood and experienced it, right? So in other words, 
we can only speak about things that we've actually experienced. Otherwise, all we're doing is preaching. Um, and all we're doing is just, you know, reflecting and analyzing texts. But I am of the nature to say that if you are a teacher, you should be a teacher who has these experiences and so that you can actually know the roadmap. You actually know the path and the signposts and be able to guide people and say, hey, look out for this or know based on the descriptions of what they're saying and then recognize where they are on their path. And I also see it as a way of inspiring people. I, obviously, when I'm talking about these things, I'm talking about it because you, you've asked the questions and I, I've had the intention to be completely forthright about my experiences, obviously. So, you know, otherwise I have no intention of, you know, shouting out, shout, shouting about it on, on the rooftops, you know, hey, look at this, you know, I have no, no intention like that. And, and, you know, the way I teach is, and I've always told people this is the way I teach is, um, I only teach if somebody has a question. I don't go out and say, hey, you know, listen to me and and try this out and, you know, all of those things. And I live in a way which is basically as it's almost like a monastic lifestyle in the sense that I just go where I'm uh, where I go and people invite me over to teach and I go and teach, you know, I'm I'm like an I'm I'm just like this wandering yogi if you will, you know, and and uh, I'm on I'm on the border point between a lay life and, and a monastic life, if you will, in that sense. So from that perspective, I, I see that, you know, talking about these things only help inspire and motivate if the conditions are right. And what I mean by when I say the conditions are right is that you have an understanding that the student is ready to discuss these things. Obviously, with this interview, a lot of people are going to have a lot of interesting ideas about what we're talking, a lot of interesting uh, speculations and comments for, for sure. But the hope is that it will help uh, people inspire them to say, okay, this is interesting. I'd like to learn more and, and check it out and see what it's all about. So my, my short answer is, if you have experienced these things, and if you think it will be of benefit for others why not talk about them? Why not discuss them? And at the same time, I would also say, I mean, in, in addition to that, I would also say that these states are indeed achievable. These uh, different states that we talk about, um, I want to be able to demystify them, if you will, because there's a lot of language from the suttas and the different uh, spiritual texts that make them out to be these mystical states that, that make them out to be almost mythical levels of experience. But I, I really admire uh, science and neuroscience in its ability to take this and contextualize it for us in a modern way. So that really what we're looking at is saying, okay, this is what happens in the brain when you go through these states. This is the benefits that you experience on a neuroscientific level. Because by the way, just as an addition, we are later on going to do fMRI scans, and that's probably going to give us better clarity into what part of part of the what parts of the brain are active during this state and what parts are not active you know and i would say i i i have a i have a let's say vocational interest in neuroscience i mean I, i'm a big fan of uh, people like robert sapolsky uh and other and other people in behavioral neuroscience and cognitive behavioral therapy and and things like that so you know, I, I'm always of the nature to say, if science can help prove to us these kinds of things, then more power to them. And if they can help us disprove other things and be able to clarify certain kinds of states, 
in a modern understanding, then more power to them there as well. Mm, very interesting. And given that you're asserting here that it's possible for anybody um, to uh, attain what you've attained, and to perhaps rephrase my original question, how commonly is it attained? Oh. Is what I mean. <laughs> and for instance, yeah. we look at the world today, and first glance, it seems to be extraordinarily rare. And so yeah. the direction of my question was, is that because you're extraordinarily you know, gifted or talented, for example, which people have talents, you know, it's, it's a possible hypothesis, or is it that there are many that um, have attained it that don't talk about it because of, say, religious or cultural restraints on their ability to talk about it, uh, for example? Or is there some other explanation as to why it appears right. to be, at first glance, extraordinarily rare what you're claiming, but at the same time you're making the claim that anybody can do it? So how does that um, yeah. Yeah. picture uh, resolve? <laughs> Yeah, well, for, for one, I'll say for me personally, I think uh, for me, it's because of my, my natural curiosity into spirituality uh, and, and my natural willingness to learn without barriers. Uh, in other words, my, uh, well, I, I will have to say, you know, all my foundation in the, in the practice with the Yoga Sutras and the other traditions has kind of given me uh, an advantage there. Uh, so I would say, yes, it is achievable, but having gone through uh, a lot of effort and, and the right kind of effort, so to speak. So I say that it is achievable, but based on the idea that I myself have gone through all of these different practices. So it's a matter of hard work, uh, but the right kind of hard work for somebody to be able to achieve it. At the same time, uh, with, let's say within the understanding of, let's say, spiritual communities, I, I do think that there are, there are people uh, who can achieve these states. I know of a few personally. I know of a few personally, but to what extent that is throughout different traditions or throughout the different um, uh, spiritual backgrounds, I can't say for sure. But I would say that uh, based on my experience with teachers, uh, in yoga, based on my experience with teachers in Tantra and uh, Kashmir Shaivism and things like that, they indeed are, you know, the real deal, if you will. I mean, they, they really have these different uh, abilities to do these different kinds of states of samadhi. And, and I know of, uh, and when I'm talking about, I know of a few people, uh, um, I'm talking about people who actually can get into Nirodha Samapati. I know of them and I know of them within the community itself. So perhaps, perhaps it is rare in the larger scheme of things. But having said that, I still think that it is achievable. If you put in the work, if you put in the dedication, if you put in the time and you have the, the right effort with the right understanding, it will be able to take you into these same uh, replicable steps towards experiencing Nirodha. Now, in terms of... Uh, in terms of the the in terms of the the commonality or in terms of or rather let's say in terms of the traditional aspect of being secretive about these things i think it it people become naturally secretive about these things at least from my own experience i don't really talk about these things and i i say that with the fact that i know that i'm on this podcast and the only reason I'm talking about these things, like I said before, is because you're asking me the questions and I'm just being honest with what my experience has been. But otherwise, I 
think naturally when people to get get to these different levels of attainment, uh, they are less interested in talking about it to other people. They're more satisfied and content in their own experiences. So there's a there's a loss of conceit. There's a, a lessening of any kind of pride in these things. But that might be the other reason why people don't talk about it. It's just because the subject never really comes up. And uh, when it does, they don't really have a real interest in talking about it because naturally they become less and less uh, egocentric, if you will, about these things. Well, Delson, this has been so fascinating. And I want to reiterate my appreciation for your candid, uh, candidness here, uh, talking as you have done so openly about your experiences. Uh, really uh, remarkable and excellent. So thank you. Now, I'm curious, you're 31, is that right? I am 31, yeah. Mm -hmm. So 31, what now? What now for you? Do you have any more <laughs> contemplative goals, meditational areas of curiosity and interest? You described yourself as almost a scientist of this stuff. You know, is there anything else you're looking into or you're, you're working on in that side of things? And then I'll ask you after that where people can find you and so on. But uh, let's start with that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I am very happy where I am right now. And uh, a lot of times people now will ask me that question, like, do you have any expectations? Do you have like a five-year plan? Do you have goals? And do you have these kinds of things? And uh, basically what I tell them is I see life now as being a series of unfolding. So whatever comes down this path will be whatever comes down this path. Um in terms of my own personal interests, I, I do like the scientific aspect of it. So, for example, uh, I, I'm, I'm a friend of somebody who is within the neuroscientific community. And what we would like to do at some point in time, and it, just for the benefit of people both in the scientific community as well as in the contemplative practice community, is to be able to create maybe an app along with the Muse or something that's uh, something else like the Muse where people can, can actually track their meditation progress and, and things like that. So I'm very fascinated by the neuroscience of it all and, and the cognitive behavioral aspect of it. In terms of practice, uh, right now, all I'm doing is just the practice I do, which is uh, you know the jhana practice and then uh, nirodha and, and things like that. Um, but I'm always interested in talking with people about yoga uh, about Vedanta, about all of these things. And I don't consider myself anything. Like, I don't consider myself a Buddhist. I don't consider myself a Vedantin. I don't consider myself a yogi. That sense of an image has completely gone. So for me to have a goal right now at this point, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. I, I will tell you one thing. I mean, since uh, since I've started down this path, it has naturally and organically grown on its own in terms of my, let's say, um, you know, quote unquote, teaching career, if you will. And what I mean by that is, you know, people have uh, heard about uh, this practice and they've heard about uh, my my experiences a little bit or they, they've seen my talks and they're inspired by it or they've gone to a retreat. And so all of the stuff that has continued to grow is because of word of mouth. People seem to have gotten some benefit from it. And so I don't, I don't advertise, I don't broadcast, uh, you know, what I do or things like that. Um, and, but when there's opportunities to talk about it, I do talk about it when people are naturally curious and, and they want to know more about, you know, my practice and my experience. 
right now, as I said, I'm, I'm working with Damasuka and I'm also working with uh, Sutavada Foundation. And, uh, you know, they have different goals. So I just go with the flow. Um, and, and the way I, I talk to people about this is I'm like a free bird. Like I, I don't have any interest in, you know, making a name for myself or fame or fortune and all of these things that come up from being, you know, let's say a spiritual teacher and things like that. I, I just, I'm just a wandering yogi, if you will, as I said before. I just wander around aimlessly until somebody says, hey, would you be interested in teaching? And I say, okay, that's fine. Uh, you know, what, what, did, what did you have in mind? And then they plan it out. Even the Dhamma talks that I started doing a year ago was not of my own intention. So my life has been really now like a series of different people's intentions without any of my own personal ambitions in there. I'm not really anymore an ambitious person um, at all. I don't really have any motivations to see anything grow. I just see it grow when it grows. And, you know, there's always going to be people who have criticism about it or, you know, things that I do. And I see it in the same way as people who have praise about it. That's just the way my mind works now. It's just things are flowing and this mind, this life, this energy that's continuing on is going with that flow. And I understand you're working on a book on dependent origination. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah, I'm still stuck in craving, if you will. I'm stuck on the chapter in craving. So um, I keep telling that to people. Uh, well, so this book came came about as an idea. Um, I'd say it's been about four or five months. And the idea with this book is, you know, it's sort of like an encyclopedia about dependent origination from, and the way it's going to work out is it's going to be probably two volumes because it's based off of what's known as the Upanisa Sutta. And the Upanisa Sutta talks about 23 links rather than the 12 links as we understand them. So what I'm doing is I'm going to walk people through from Jara Marana and the components of suffering and walk uh, back towards birth and being and clinging and craving and feeling and so on, all the way at the end, all the way to the taints, uh, that is to say the asavas, the defilements of ignorance, uh, of sensual craving, of being. That's going to be the first volume. And then the second volume is going to talk about uh, 12 uh, or rather 11 additional links, starting with suffering. And the Upanisha Sutta talks about how suffering can lead to conviction in this practice and how that leads into gladness and that leads into joy, that leads into tranquility and equanimity and so on. So that part of that uh, book will be the path leading to Nibbana, path leading to this experience of the jhanas, leading to this experience of Nirvana and full awakening. So I'm looking at probably a good year and a half to two years before I'm actually done with the book. Um, and then, you know, then the editing and things like that. So maybe three years down the road, it'll be done. We'll see how things go. Uh, I, I, I tend to be a fast writer because once I start to get into it, uh, I, I write a lot. And, and basically each chapter itself is almost like a book because each chapter is about 90, 100 pages. So it could just be a lot, massive uh, 2000 page book, which might just be divided into separate volumes. Uh, we'll see how it works. Um, but aside from that, I, I also have another book that just came out. Uh, and then I, I have 
three other books that are in in the woodworks. Uh, they're basically going to be transcripts of different talks I've given. So they're like collections of different talks I've given and, and different modules of teaching that I've given that can be available in book form. Well, Dalson, this has been fascinating. Wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. You know, I'd love to do a sequel. You know, there's so much we haven't talked on. For, you have very interesting views on 31 planes of existence. Are they psychological states, as, as is commonly said, or are they actual places that you can end up? And uh, you have some very interesting views on that. Perhaps I'll just tease that question. And uh, yeah. So anyway, Dalson Armstrong, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.